Perhaps you have heard of Brian Stevenson, who is a lawyer, social justice activist, and founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. Stevenson has written a book entitled Just Mercy, A Story of Redemption and Justice. And I, I so commend this book to you. If you really want to know what forgiveness and reparations and restoration is all about. Stevenson makes the case that it is distance, physical distance, social distance, spiritual distance, that allows injustice to flourish. He writes that proximity to one's neighbor and remember that we're all neighbors, according to Jesus, is what turns our hearts towards love and restorative justice. He writes about his first interaction with Death Row, and this was when he was in, in law school, and, and these two men were exactly the same age, and yet one was studying at Harvard Law School, and one was condemned to die. He writes, Henry asked me questions about myself, and I asked him about his life. Within an hour, we were both lost in conversation. I had no right to expect anything from a condemned man on death row. Yet he gave me an astonishing measure of his humanity. Stevenson explains that relationships and the relationship with, relationship with others, in other words, proximity, has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we have ever done. He goes on and says, we are all implicated when we allow other people to be mistreated. An absence of compassion can corrupt the decency of a community, a state, a nation. Fear and anger can make us vindictive and abusive, unjust and unfair, until we all suffer from the absence of mercy and we condemn ourselves as much as we victimize the other. The closer we get to mass incarceration and extreme levels of punishment, the more I believe it is necessary to recognize that we all, hear this, that we all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Well, I could probably end my sermon there, right? But I won't. <laughs> so if the parable we just heard from the teachings of Jesus has caused you pause, you are not alone. The parable
parable itself is pretty straightforward, right? But the struggle of the parable is to bring it to life in our lives. So Peter has just asked Jesus the hard question, how many times should we forgive someone? Seven times? Now, have you ever wondered that in your own life? How many times am I going to have to forgive them? How many times? Jesus' response is stunning. Jesus tells Peter that he should forgive not just seven times, but 77 times. Children are not the only ones who will lose track of that. We all will lose track of that. Now, I want to tell you, I think there are two things that happen in our wily brains when we hear this parable. The first is, we distance ourselves from it. I mean, it's just easy to say, that's Peter and the disciples more than 2,000 years ago. I don't have to deal with that. It's easy to um, talk about forgiving in general terms. I mean, maybe seven times, 77 times. But add a face to that. Pick a face. A face that has angered you face that is hard to even bring to your mind. Now, I imagine that when Peter asked this question, Peter had somebody in mind, right? Peter is concrete in asking this question because Peter needs to know what's expected. And we miss the point if we don't hold a specific person or a specific circumstance in our minds as we hear this teaching. The second thing we do is we make it all about the math. You know, we get caught up in this intellectual discussion of what Jesus means by 77 times. Well, does he literally mean 77 times? Because there are people who will say he literally means 77 times. So here's a thought. What if it's not about the math? So I want us to consider that this parable is actually a reflection on the teaching that Jesus has given at the request of the disciples. The disciples come to Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray. And Lord, the Lord, Jesus, the rabbi of Nazareth, is their call the Lord. It is short. And within that short prayer are the words, forgive us our trespasses, or forgive us our debts, or forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who trespass, who are debtors to us, who sin against us. In, at the New Church, we use the language of sins. Forgive us our sins 
as we forgive those who sin against us. You know, I, I have to point out here that the liberal progressive Christian church doesn't like to talk about sin. We, we just haven't developed the language for it. And possibly that's because so many of us were beaten over the head with the idea of sinning. Well, um, when you understand that the word sin in the Greek and the Hebrew actually simply means to miss the mark. Miss the mark. Forgive us for missing the mark as we forgive those who miss the mark. Somehow that changes things. There are all kind of theological and social reasons why progressive liberal Christians have avoided the language of sin. As I said, it's particularly difficult if you have been on the receiving end of judgment from the church, as have queer people, as have divorced people, as have people of different backgrounds, religions, cultures. I could go on. Equally, the theology that tells us that we are sinners, that we are worms, that we are unredeemable, it's just simply not consistent with a liberal, progressive vision of who God is and how God loves. There's a lot more, but I'll move on. I would say that the overall message in the parable is pretty clear, echoing the Lord's Prayer, that we should forgive others even as we have been forgiven. So flip that phrase, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, that what we're asking is that the measure in which God has forgiven us, that we might be able to forgive. If we stop there, however, we don't receive the full impact of Jesus' parable, if that's all we talk about. So the New Revised Standard Version of Scripture actually uses the word talents and denarii, but that means little to nothing to us. A talent was about 130 pounds of silver and was the equivalent of about 15 years of a laborer's wages. 15 years. The millions and few thousands reference you heard in the reading this morning actually comes from the New Living Translation. And the common English translation says that the servant owed the king a bag of gold. The talent example means that the servant owed the king about 150,000 years of labor. In other words, he could never pay it back. He wouldn't live long enough to pay it back. A denarius in the common English Bible says uh, that there is a hundred coins by comparison, which was worth about a day's wage. This means that the second servant owed the forgiven one about a hundred days of labor. That's also no small debt. Surely we cannot overlook the relative minor debt when the first servant had just been forgiven an impossibly huge one. 
this just can't escape us, can it? I mean, you and I, we have a, a you know, we, we kind of like counting and calculating and keeping track of things, right? For now, while the unforgiving servant's debt to the king has been wiped clean, he immediately moves over to the ledger and is fixated on the debt of his fellow servant, just like we do. We calculate, we add and subtract, we weigh things out. And notice how Peter starts the conversation. He starts the conversation by asking Jesus for a number. Peter wants to know just how much will be expected of him, how much is reasonable and how much is required. And don't we do that? I mean, or perhaps better stated, what is the minimum requirement for me? What is the minimum I have to do when I forgive people? What's the least I have to do to get by? <laughs> so Peter suggests something that might be more than what would be expected, being so proud of himself. But Jesus turns Peter's question on its head, replying with a ridiculous, even impossible reply. You want to play the numbers game? I'll play the numbers game with you. And I think Jesus was trying to show us that we just don't get it when it comes to the numbers game with God. Because God forgives, period. So I think this parable has a lot to teach us about relationships and community and the condition of our hearts and minds and souls. Consider that the king forgives a debt that cannot be repaid. And by doing so is emphasizing that the relationship with the servant is more important than the amount that is owed. The relationship is brought back together by the forgiveness of the king. More importantly, the king is demonstrating the nature of his heart, which is the nature of kindness and grace and mercy. Of course, then, we have to deal with the response of the servant. Why? Why, after he's been forgiven this massive debt, would he then turn around and throw somebody in jail who owes him a fraction of that amount? Of course, then I have to ask, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we who see ourselves as forgiven, forgiven everything, that we are not held to the worst thing we have ever done in our lives by God? We have been forgiven. Why would we do the same for those who have sinned against us, hold them to the worst thing they have ever done to us? It should be said here that there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I always feel like I need to say this. You can forgive and not re-enter into a relationship with someone, particularly if that someone is still doing damage to you. And in fact, most therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, pastoral leaders would tell you not to re-enter that relationship. Still, we are called on to forgive. Because why? I said it in my newsletter this week. That old saying, holding on to anger, is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The poison remains in us as long as we can't forgive. 
as Reverend David Lowe's points out, it's not that Jesus wants Peter to increase his forgiveness quota. It's that Jesus wants Peter and you and me to stop counting altogether simply because forgiveness, like love, is inherently relational rather than legal and therefore cannot be counted. All of which brings me to the rather harsh ending of the parable. I mean, you know, after the king has been so gracious, now he throws the guy in jail and says, you don't get out till you pay back. And it's a debt he can't pay back, right? <coughs> and then Jesus adds, and so it will be with you if you do not forgive your sisters and brothers with your whole heart. Yikes. What are we supposed to do with that? It's a parable. Hear me. Jesus is using a parable to illustrate something. And consequently, the terms are big and broad. And he uses hyperbole. He uses great and grand words to draw attention and to shock the listeners. He uses exaggeration. I think Jesus knew that nobody lives according to Jesus 77 times kind of forgiveness perfectly. Which means that if we want to read this parable literally, then we make forgiveness into a law, a counting game. And in that we are all condemned. Well, let me say, as I did at the beginning, the reality of this parable is not easy. It's not easy to live. And yet, I believe it is essential that we wrestle with this until we get the blessing. The reality of it all is that forgive, forgiving another or asking forgiveness is hard. It means realizing and confronting the hurt within us and the hurt that we have caused. And that is also deeply intimate. It means acknowledging that the relationship you have with someone who has sinned against you makes you vulnerable. One of my favorite books that teaches this lesson is Dead Men Walking by Sister Helen Prejean. In the story, she includes the life of Lloyd LeBlanc, who was a Roman Catholic layperson whose son was murdered. When LeBlanc arrives in the field with the sheriff's deputies to identify his son's body, he immediately knelt by his boy's body and prayed the Lord's Prayer. When he came to the words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, he realized the depth of the commitment that he was making. He later told Sister Prejean, whoever did this, I must forgive them. Though it would be difficult not to be overcome by bitterness and feelings of revenge that would well up in him from time to time, LeBlanc said that each day for the rest of his life, forgiveness must be prayed for and struggled for and won. Lloyd LeBlanc knew a truth. I bet you know it too. What matters to God is not who is right, and who is wrong. What matters to God is who is broken. And when you forgive someone, not as an emotion of the heart, 
but as an act of the will, then, you, then love reveals who is broken. And love reveals who will not allow someone else's brokenness to break them. Lloyd LeBlanc knew that he couldn't let someone else's brokenness break him. And so he chose to put on Christ. So can we do that? Can we put on Christ? Can we live that kind of active loving? Can we put on Christ as we put on our clothes each morning? It is interesting, isn't it, that the only phrase in the Lord's Prayer with a condition says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And however are we to accomplish this? For all the heartache and anger that people have with the Apostle Paul, he teaches us a lot. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Write those down. Put them on your refrigerator. Write them on your bathroom mirror. They are the way of life for you and for me. He goes on and says, bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, Forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must also forgive. And above all, clothe yourselves with love. Here's the roadmap. This is how we do it. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is to love, to forgive, even as we have been forgiven, to love even as we have been loved. Clothe yourself with it, won't you? Remembering that the servant would never, ever, in a million years, be able to pay back the debt. And us, if God loves us this much, how much more will we love and forgive. Amen.